In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're halfway through Epiphany, and now might be a good time to look at what Epiphany means. Epiphany in English means manifestation, specifically of a divine or supernatural being. It comes from the Greek, epi, which means kind of an intensification outside of and also a way of, of heightening the, the intensity of a verb, and phanine or phanero, which means just to show forth, to reveal something. And if what is revealed may be anticipated and even hoped for, it does so suddenly, in a moment of striking and unexpected insight. What's shown forth, proclaimed, even exclaimed, the wonder that what is, is, and might not have been. Something since seen as necessary was, in fact, a contingency, a possibility. Something for which there were no guarantees came into being in spite of everything. And the wonder is that it happened at all. If there's a theme that runs through Epiphany, it's how out of the most ordinary and unpromising circumstances, something extraordinary comes again and again. The Epiphany journey, which started with the wise men, auspiciously enough, following a star, very auspicious, but ending up in the most unlikely of places, jumps from a baby surrounded with the symbols of anointing in a feeding trough surrounded by animals, to the young man in the Jordan, being baptized in that muddy and almost ephemeral stream in the desert. Today, starting his ministry at a wedding, turning disaster into triumph by turning wash water into wine. Next week, pronouncing the word of God, taking his turn with authority in the synagogue, and laying claim to an understanding which even those hearing him struggle to accept and acknowledge. The carpenter's son, just a carpenter's son, suddenly sounding like the living God himself. Finally, at Candlemas, the presentation, the end of the Epiphany season, we see Jesus again as a baby, 40 days old, participating in yet another ritual action. His parents offer the poorest of sacrifices, a couple of birds, the cheapest thing that they can get. And yet his mother is acclaimed by Simeon as the mother of the Lord's anointed. This is a season then with much to show for it, always emerging from most inconspicuous and inauspicious beginnings. And if the additional thread of passion, of suffering, of being done to starts and ends this season, action is the key word for this Sunday and next. The priestly action of preparing wine, the prophetic action of pronouncing the word. The basis for today's sacramental sign, not just efficacious but miraculous, is the same as last week's water, the stuff of life, but as prosaic a substance as can be imagined. Not to be taken for granted as far as its distribution goes, but so overabundant, at least in those days, from the supply side 
as to render it impossible to price. Necessary for life, but also freely available. And this is not even drinking water, but wash water, used to cleanse cups and saucers, pots and pans, in a ritual that is both practical and spiritual at the same time. It does this, water does this, because water is the universal solvent, and solvents dissolve. They separate one element from another, clean from unclean, life from death symbolically. Water can loosen dirt and even grime from surfaces and rinse them away. It can rinse a physical particle of dirt from your nice romaine lettuce. And it is for cleansing the surfaces of things that this purification water is set aside. And also to announce to the world that this is the people of God who are doing the purifying a people themselves washed clean, baptized, so that they may be separate from those pagan nations around them. Now, wine is mainly water, but that which water, wine adds to water is also a solvent on its own, ethanol and a few other compounds. Ethanol is also useful for cleansing but its properties go beyond the physical dissolution of superficial dirt. If you don't quite rinse that head of romaine lettuce and the dirt that goes into your salad and is then ingested into your innards passes, you into, passes on to you the sal salmonella, uh, you need something more in wa than water to get rid of it. Wine in the ancient world would have done that. Ethanol is a biocide, it's toxic, it kills things. An active substance intended to destroy, deter, render harmless, or prevent the action of or otherwise exert a controlling effect on any harmful <coughs> organism. The ethanol in wine is more potent than water, but gentle enough to be used as an antiseptic, to cleanse the, wo cleanse the wounds in living things as opposed to disinfecting non-living surfaces, for which wine vinegar, however, is still very effective indeed. Drinking wine, toxic or not, as scientists tell us, is good for the health in moderation, that is, when consumed in strict synchronization with the body's ability to digest it. We get drunk when we drink faster than we can digest. And our digestion is much slower than most of us would like. There are other elements that in, are in wine which create in us all kinds of pleasant sensations. And we begin to want a little more maybe than is good for us. That's why the cost of drinking so commonly outweighs the benefits in practice, which is why you could do worse than be part of a community which strictly regulates alcoholic consumption. Enough said. And I've said this before. Now, this is not a science class, but I am struck by the dispensational implications of the little dispensary that our <coughs> Lord sets up at that wedding. Water purifies outwardly, and inasmuch as it is used preventatively, its outward works suffice to keep one safe from inner distress. Water is very much like the law, if you like. Regularly, uh, using it as a purifying agent will keep you relatively immune or at least resistant to those things that can get inside you to your distress. But if you do ingest something toxic, 
the toxin wine will re work redemptively by outtoxifying it, if you like. Wine goes in, ethanol that is, where the wounds of life go deep and heals. It casts out that which would kill and strengthens that which is about life. This water of purification, reinforcing the boundary markers that separates God people from their neighbors, renders us unstained by the world. It washes away our sins, or at least whitewashes them. But like the tombs to which Jesus compares the Pharisees, it may leave us dying or dead spiritually on the inside. For that, we need spirits, or the Holy Spirit, to do that work. Proud of our exclusivity, however, we enter the game of compare and compete without and eventually within if we limit ourselves to that boundary marker which that ritual washing maintains. If we go through life saying, we are God's people, we try to live a pure life, we do practices which are pure, follow a lot of disciplines, we can still find ourselves withering within. So, wine, if one looks at these things, is something that can cause a blood alcohol concentration, and if that blood alcohol concentration goes above 0.12%, typically that causes an overall improvement in mood and possible euphoria, increased self-confidence and sociability, and decreased anxiety. Now, what the heck is wrong with that, all the wash water in the world will not instantly induce euphoria. The fine print, however, goes on to say it will also bring about a flushed red appearance in the face and impaired judgment and fine muscle coordination. If you drink it fast enough, you will lose the euphoria and find that all of that anxiety and all of that anger are coming right back again. But if you manage it, carefully, you will find that you're in a place where you're not on the defensive anymore, boundaries are relaxed, and an easy, even instant familiarity with everyone around you who is suddenly your friend is assumed. Purity becomes parity, becomes party. Whether, however, when one's judgment returns to whatever unimpaired state is the status quo, with the gray light of dawn, one has made any real gains in bonding instead of building boundaries with all those newfound friends, is often undetermined. If we could only take the toxic out of intoxication, maybe wine could be something more. But it often is simply a narcotic, a taste of death to the pain of life, a numbing of the sensations that everyday life imbues within us, no matter how often we wash our hands. Now, the master of the feast, we note, in the story we heard, knows that he is serving the best wine to those whose judgment has been too impaired to appreciate it. He knows this because the servants tell, them, tell him. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, i.e. become somewhat drunk, when their discernment is damaged and their capacity to tell good from bad compromised, then they serve the poor wine but you've kept the good wine until now. You think that through, and it means that Jesus is serving the best he has to people who are in no position whatsoever to appreciate it. That's called grace. 
Why serve the good wine at all is our question. Well, the master of the feast knows that the story of the miracle of how that wine came to be and how the servants who don't get to drink but just to taste it knew that this was wonderful wine are going to begin to tell the village what really went on. That lavish generosity of Jesus, that grace in which God in Christ saves the mother of the groom, a bit of debate over whether it's the mother of the groom that holds the wedding. We believe it is. I think they're patrilocal in those days. You can correct me later. I'm still looking for the defense. It's not in the text. But he saves whoever it is, the mother of the groom, from absolute disgrace if they run out of wine. They don't run out of wine, and that the wine was not just good, that it was truly outstanding, will ensure that the mother of that groom is going to have a very full social calendar for many years to come. But as we look at that wedding and the euphoria that is bringing that group of disparate celebrators together in some kind of sense of unity, and if you get to uh, officiate at weddings as I do, you know uh, at some point in the rehearsal that uh, beneath the surface, there's a great deal of disunity bubbling around. <laughs> Families relive all of their uh, unfinished business, if you like, at weddings. At funerals, they're usually very subdued, but at weddings, it all comes out. You often find yourself working as a peacemaker especially when you have to bring the mother of the bride in, who usually has the last word on every liturgical matter. You're trying to recreate a sense of unity, and the wine is basically guaranteed to do that. The wedding guests, their anxieties and ri rivalries being now ameliorated, respond with a joyfulness which puts us in mind of that which the disciples on the day of Pentecost manifested when they're accused of being drunk, as you recall, quite early in the day. So what is this euphoria, whether from the Holy Spirit or from spirits, that works to dissolve the differences between kith and kin and binds kindred spirits together? It ameliorates differences. It doesn't exacerbate them. It creates commonalities, if you like, between people. In the sober, cold light of day, we work by the model of compare and compete. But when wine comes into the picture, we can begin, at least, to work for consensus. And when the spirit comes, that work is definitive. So what is it that's going on? My take on it is that with wine and that openness, that relax, relaxation that comes in, and that searching for commonality is also the ability of each of us to acknowledge the possibilities that are unique to each of us. The fact that God makes us as individuals, he doesn't roll us off a conveyor belt. And as desperately as we seek our identity in some collectivity of some kind, and the present agony of collective uh, identity politics in our world right now shows the desperate hunger for some kind of truth in belonging and the desire to avoid finding who one is in a confrontation with one's own inner demons and angels. What is it about the potential that is in each person 
that yearns at the same time to be affirmed and received to belong to every other person. For this we turn to Paul's letter, and we'll be looking at that more next week, because Paul's letter is exactly about that, the 12th chapter at any rate, about the fact that there is unity in diversity, that out of many can be, can be made one, and from one many are put forward. He's noted the extent to which God builds in with that, the possibility of our divisions, and we see plenty of that today. But he also notes that the very gifts we have, our difference from one another, exactly is exactly what is needed. We have to find a way to share that which we see, which no one else sees, that which we believe, which no one else does with others. Because Paul has made it very clear that God has intended us to listen to one another as difficult as it seems. And as much as we are tempted to want to wash away those things in someone else which go against what we believe, God is pushing for greater and greater openness to that which threatens us and perplexes us and seems to us either simply annoying or deeply threatening to say, be careful that the voice of the Holy Spirit is not coming to you from that. Paul says, there are varieties of gifts, service, dekanoia, and activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation, that's our word, phanero, the showing forth of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has set this tension, in other words, among us. And it is only God, the Spirit, not any amount of political exercising, who can resolve this, gather us together to work and worship him as we each are called, and yet find in one another listening ears and open hearts to hear even the difficult things we have to say. In the world, our tendency is to stop seeking unity with one another long before God has exhausted the possibility of our finding it. And to ease the very real pain that our disunity causes, pain that we get by rejecting others and by being rejected, we resort to intoxicants of all kinds. But only the spirit of love can truly bring us into communion with one another. How to find that? I don't know. I'm a burden to myself as well as to anyone I know. And I often find myself stumbling over myself when I am trying to share with someone else what God is doing in their lives. When I sense that I simply am not hearing, I often try this, a little exercise, in which I see the one with whom I'm sharing as a child, whether they're young, a young adult, or one of riper years like me, I try to see themselves as a child, full of limitless possibilities. And as they grow through life, limited by their very real needs and the limitations which our culture always puts on meeting those needs. What has life done to draw them, 
I ask, to draw me, to draw all of us away from what we could have been if God had had his way. And what is Jesus doing now to draw us back? It's a prayer place that you go to. And more and more, I am finding the place of prayer is where everything gets settled. Everything begins and everything ends. So my prayer for me and for all of us is to ask that we could see those we do not want to like on that Godward, homeward trajectory, understanding that someday we might learn to love them. And that's the church's job, to be open to possibilities, to shut down as little as possible, and to help those who don't even want to like one another, to really love one another, to keep the community from separating into subgroups of people who like those who are like them, and to keep us gently confronting each other in our differences, not to enter into the usual zero-sum game that this world promotes with ever greater eagerness these days. You win or lose, there's nothing in between to the win-win scenario, which is God's idea of how we could get along if we give him and one another the chance. And as we do that, Let's pray that we may see those with whom we meet, with whom we share our lives, with whom we share our different paths, which will all converge once again at that great wedding banquet in the sky, when we, the bride, shall be received by our bridegroom for once and for all as children of God in the end, not just brothers and sisters of one another with all the big, nice hugs, but as children of God children to whom God has given more than any of us can imagine, but from whom God needs from all of us the ability to hear, the ability to listen, the ability to encourage, the ability to go back and back again and again to those points where we're different, open and vulnerable, willing to hear and to learn just with the possibility in mind that that child of God who has so threatened us maybe knows something that we don't know and that we need to know. Let that spirit keep drawing us again and again to everything that we can be. Amen.